Good morning, brothers and sisters. I think I'm pretty much past the point of running, as we just sang, but praise God, I can still walk and not faint. So he is good to us. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, the whole chapter, 43 rather, not 3, 43. We've got a lot to look at. A couple of weeks back, in Genesis 42, we saw how Jacob's sons had returned from, returned to Canaan, rather, from Egypt, telling their father what had taken place. That man in Egypt kept Simeon as surety that they would remain, return with Benjamin, because he had queried them about their other, other brother. Jacob was undone, you may recall. He was fearing the loss of his youngest on top of the loss of Joseph, which he thought was dead. And now Simeon is in the clutches of the Egyptians. In our passage today, we see providence unfolding. God moving people as he determined for his plan to be as he has decreed. And we also see in this family of this man of Jacob, we see distrust. And we see tension and discord among the brothers. And that's instructive for us. So let's look at the first ten verses here. Genesis 43, verses 1 through 10. Now the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why did you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether you still had another brother? But they said, the man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him, according to these words, Could we have possibly have known that he would say, Bring your brother down? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. For both we and you and also our little ones... I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not lingered, surely by now we would have returned this second time. Last time we heard about the famine when it first started up, It was described as a worldwide famine affecting all the nations. This time we're not told about the extent of the famine, only that it is severe. And it's the focus here in our chapter is not on the world. It's narrow. It's on the tribe of Israel. He's not called Jacob in this chapter. He's called Israel. And I think that's reflective of Moses' intent that we see the development of this promise that he had given to Abraham and who these people are. 
God cannot abandon His people. Now, we've seen all along Abraham's descendants have not been commendable to us as individuals. But God said He would make Abram into the father of many nations. And He will not break that promise. These twelve sons of Jacob, Israel, they will be the heads of the twelve tribes of that nation. Now, we don't know how long they had been back in Canaan. Some time had passed. We know they ate all the food they brought. We know they brought lots of food. It's gone. Israel wants his children, his sons, to go back to Egypt and buy more food. But Judah, it's interesting, here Judah speaks up. He's not the oldest. He's the third oldest. But Simeon's gone. I forget the other guy's name. It was in my head and it fell out. He's kind of disgraced. Judah speaks up. It's interesting who he is. But Judah is the one who reminds him, he reminds his father of what the man in Egypt said. And they can't go back. They can't so much as see his face, much less buy food unless Benjamin is with them. The tension in this family doesn't end easily. You recall that from beginning, Joseph had these dreams that he couldn't keep to himself and he engendered jealousy and envy from his older brothers. And that's part and parcel what God used to put him in Egypt. Jacob. He had favorites. He had favorite wife. He had two wives. One was a favorite. One wasn't. Favorite sons. Jacob was a favored son over Esau. This favoritism is common in families and it's always destructive to a degree. Recall how when they returned from the first trip and they told Jacob the conditions of the second trip retold in our chapter. Jacob said, you have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. That's in Genesis 42:36, And he goes on in 38 to say, verse 38, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray head with sorrow to the grave. Jacob's a very dramatic guy. He doesn't want Benjamin to go. Why? Because he's precious to him. He's his favorite son. All the other brothers hear this. They know this. They know that they are not the favored son. In our chapter, Judah feels compelled to remind his father of what the man in Egypt had said. It's possible that Jacob was so full of self-pity, imagining all the calamity was going to come on him, that he'd kind of pushed that out of his head. For whatever reason, Judah rehearses it with him. And when confronted with this horrible news a second time, in our chapter, Israel asks his sons, why did you deal so wrongfully with me as to tell the man that you had another brother? They all answer him that, Plural pronoun they. All the brothers answered Israel this question. 
And they explain it to their father a second time. And then we have Judah stepping up and he offers himself as surety for Benjamin's safety. Now, this is an act of humility on Judah's part. And it is one of the many shadows that foretell of the one who offers himself as surety for helpless rebels. He brings this conversation to a close by addressing his father's initial charge. In verse 2, Israel said, go back and buy us a little food. And to end up this section, Judah says, if we had not lingered, if you, you dragged out this conversation that we've been having for months now, if we had not lingered, we would have been back already. Judah is kind of putting himself in a position of leadership. He opens the conversation. He offers himself and he closes the conversation, pressing for a decision to go get more food so that the clan can live. No longer the lust-filled, selfish man we saw in chapter 38. I won't go into that detail, but Judah was a despicable character. Not so here. Let's move on to verses 11 through 15. And their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man. A little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take your brother also and arise and go back to the man. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double money in their hand and they arose and went down to Egypt and they stood before Joseph. Israel is older And he's weary of all that's taken place. And he just kind of resigns himself to the fact that Benjamin's going to have to go. He gives them counsel that's intended to bring them favor with this man in Egypt. Under the perceived notion that they are under the threat of having harm done to them. Because, you know, they've got this money that wasn't theirs. It was put back in their sack. And there's all these questions in their minds about are they perceived as thieves. And when they return, how is that going to unfold itself? Take local treasures and twice the money for the grain, plus the money that was on top of your food bags when you came back the first time. Now, it's interesting here, a little bit of Bible trivia. It's the first time honey shows up in the Bible. First first mention of honey is right here. Take some honey and pistachio nuts and almonds. Who don't like pistachio nuts and almonds, right? Take some honey. We don't know if Egypt knew of honey at this time. It's a treasure from Canaan. Okay. Canaan would later be known as what? The land of milk and honey. Okay. Jacob is resigned to the idea that he might lose Benjamin. And he asks Yahweh to give them favor with that man in Egypt. This is a good thing. Israel, man of God, Israel, 
the nation to be asking God for mercy. And may God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may release your other brother. Doesn't call him by name. Your other brother. And Benjamin. Him by name. <laughs> it never gets, never gets out of their face. He likes Benjamin. So they, they travel. They, with this cloud hanging over them. What about this money that we took from Egypt? And can we get Simeon and Benjamin back? What's going to happen? They go and they stand before Joseph. Whether people are aware of it or not, God moves people to decide and to act so that his purpose and plan are accomplished. Now, we can look over history and wonder, did he have to do it that way? Could he have not done it some other way? But then we're putting ourselves in the place of the one who determines all things. And talking about hypothetical alternatives rarely beneficial to us in our walk of faith. We recently heard, I think Kyle mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, providence is best understood in a rearview mirror. It's hard to understand providence while you're going through a trial. I hope he's mindful of that right now. Because comfort comes from God when you trust in Him. Not when we try to figure out if He's really a wise God by trying to unravel providence while we're going through a, a trial. Neither Israel nor his sons could have had any firm idea of what God was up to. They got a lot of questions. They are mere creatures like you and I, and they don't know what God is going to work out tomorrow. So we get to uh, 16 through 18. They're in Egypt, and guess what's with them? Tension, more tension. They've had tension with their father. They go with this sense of tension in their minds about how are they going to be received. And we see here in verses 16 through 18, Da, 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 da. Where is 16? When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, so they came to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, and the man brought them in into Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was returned in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. Joseph had commanded them to be taken. He had commanded his brothers to bring him Benjamin. Right? You will not see my face unless you bring your other brother with me. I think he was a little bit shocked to see him. He hadn't seen Benjamin in 22 years by this point. Benjamin was about 10 years old when Joseph left. He's now an adult. Joseph gives orders for his brothers to be taken to his house and make ready to feed them for lunch. This was the main meal. Kind of like in the Old South, lunch was dinner. Right? And the evening meal was just a light meal. Main meal of the day. 
They were afraid. See, Joseph doesn't explain anything to them at this time. Just take them to the house. They didn't even talk to them. Take them to the house. Make ready for the meal. They don't know what's going on. They're afraid because they're taken to the man's house. They think they're going to be made slaves, kind of like what they had done to Joseph so many years ago. Sold him into slavery. Distrust breeds tension. These people, they can't trust the Egyptians. They can't trust that man. They're fearful of what's going to happen to them. Tension. One old commentary observed that the custom was for those who came on ordinary business to stay at an inn in the city, not at the house of the political leader of the, of the nation they were visiting. So there was something out of sorts, culturally speaking, with being commanded to go to my house by the vice pharaoh of Egypt. This would make the invitation all the more tense. Now let's look at 19 to 25. When they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talked with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand and we have brought down other money in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put money in our sack. But he said, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. So the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he gave their donkeys feed. Then they made the present ready for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they would eat bread there. Now, still very tentative, very much afraid, and fearing what their circumstances might bring to them. They approached the house, but they did not go in. They stopped at the door to talk to the steward of the house. They explain everything, you know, trying to be open to the guy. We, did, we don't know how the money got back into our bags. And now what's reckon what the steward's reply is? Is this an Egyptian guy here? Your God and the God of your fathers put that money in your sacks. He's been serving Joseph for a while. You reckon Joseph's been having some God talk with his Egyptian staff? This, this man had seen Joseph up close and personal. and It seems that Joseph has been praying to God, talking to God, honoring God, and all that God has given him responsibility for. And it's been noticed by some of these Egyptians that work for him. The steward tells him that he had the money. He doesn't go into details about how he doesn't have it. He says he had the money. He doesn't go into details about how he got put back in their sacks. He's just trying to put them at ease and reassure them that the God you all know, he's in the middle of this. And he brings out Simeon. And he brings him into the house. And he cleans him up. And he 
has their feet washed and he has them all taken care of their pack animals and he makes ready for the meal. And so far, no sign that the brothers are going to be made slaves. They, they displayed the treasure that they brought, make it ready for when Joseph comes so he can see all the good stuff they brought from Canaan. They want Joseph to be impressed with their desire to honor him. So let's look at the, uh, the last bit of this chapter here. We'll wrap up with this family party that they're having. Verses 26 to 34. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed down their heads and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out. And he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set a place before him. They set a place by him and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Because the Egyptians could not eat Food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. That's the end of the chapter. So the brothers followed Israel's plan. They showed honor to this Egyptian man. They presented their treasures to him. They bowed down at least twice. They prostrated themselves before him, showing submissiveness to him. Joseph asked about their father. And when he asks about Benjamin, he could not keep his composure. He prays for God's favor to be on Benjamin. And then he retires to his chamber where he could weep and not be heard. Joseph's brothers were seated at the meal according to their age. Ron Crisp in his commentary on Genesis says, They marveled not knowing how this was known. Joseph's purpose was no doubt to increase their sense of mystery. They seemed to have a deep feeling that God was at work. How would this guy from Egypt know the ages of these men? I mean, you could see this one's younger than that one, but I mean, ten of them arranged by age? How could this be? Now, in these cultures, it was common for the host to send choice morsels of food to certain guests. More food to this one than to that one. Better food to this one than that one. It's to show honor to that one individual. The more food given by the host, the more honor intended. But you weren't expected to eat everything that was put before you. And at this meal, Benjamin the youngest was given 
five times the amount of food received by his older brothers. Five times. Benjamin's being favored over his brothers, older brothers. Again, Ron Crisp, he says, Joseph's purpose was clear. At least to Joseph it was. It probably wasn't clear to the brothers. He was testing his brethren to see if they still retained their jealous and envious attitudes. Would they resent Benjamin as, he res- as they resented Joseph with his coat of many colors? How Joseph must have watched their reaction. What a discerning test this was on Joseph's part. He's testing them. Jealousy is a hard thing to get wrung out of one's soul. That's what he wants to know. Are they still envious? At this meal, the youngest is given five times the amount of food. It was over the top. How much? Kings would normally be given twice the amount of food. At a, at a big royal meeting meal, my research indicates that kings would be given twice the amount of food of the other people. Benjamin had five times the amount. John Gill agrees that Joseph wanted to honor his younger brother and test his older brothers to see if the jealousy of Israel's favoritism still had a grip on their souls, if distrust amongst themselves still marked their relationships. Note this. Joseph's brothers sat at a different table than did Joseph and his Egyptian counselors who were at the dinner. It was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with Hebrews or Greeks or anybody that observed any other religion than what the Egyptians did. Some commentators think that Joseph sat alone because his Egyptian staff knew that he was a Hebrew. It could be that he sat alone because he's the chief dog. We don't know. These seating arrangements remind me of instructions we have in the New Covenant. It was an abomination for the Egyptians to eat with people of a different religion. Don't eat with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, we're told that we should not even so much as eat with one who names Christ but is in open rebellion to Him. In that passage, I think the restriction is against ordinary meals, which is a time of close fellowship, and the Lord's Supper, which is a testimony of our unity together in Christ. Just as the Egyptian could not in good conscience eat with foreigners, neither can we in good conscience eat with a brother or sister who is in open rebellion to the Lord he claims. It's an abomination for those who claim Christ to live in open rebellion, no shame. Now, we're free to have meals with unbelievers. Our mission is to associate with unbelievers and tell them about the risen Lord Jesus and pray for their salvation. But the one who names Christ says, I'm a Christian, yet lives openly as a reprobate? Not him. This chapter ends on this note. So they drank and were merry with him. They had a big meal and they drank and were merry with him. Strong's Concordance says the Hebrew word behind Mary is shakar, and it means to become tipsy, 
to satiate with something stimulating, to influence. It's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 9 where Noah is described as drunk. You remember that? After the flood was over, he got drunk. And it has the same root word in common used in chapter 19 of Genesis where Lot's daughters caused him to drink wine to excess. One can only speculate why the King James and the New King James use this euphemistic phrase, they made merry with him. I, I, I want to sign, I want to try to assess their motives. That word means to get drunk. Now, other translations say they drank freely with him. The Greek Old Testament says they drank and were filled with drink with him. And other English translations say they drank and got intoxicated with Joseph. So there's a divergence of, I guess there's a divide between two different ways of describing their behavior. The brothers may have been relaxed and set at ease, ate their fill, drank their fill. They may have still be very tense and distrustful and nervousness caused them to drink to excess. Don't know. We do know this. It is easy to slip into abusing intoxicating substances when one is anxious, fearful, or emotional. This was the case with Noah. This was the case with Lot. Joseph being merry, being drunk with his brothers, it's never a good thing. It's never approved of by God for a human to be under the influence of intoxicating substances. People try to escape from conflict through intoxication. But this only brings more conflict and more tension. This is not the way of peace. So, what does all this mean in chapter 43? These, these brothers, they had a lot of, I keep using this word, tension. That's the word that best sums it up for me. A lack of trust with one another. In this world, those who are in Christ are going to have tension with the world. We can't escape that. And for sinners, James made it quite clear that conflict comes from a sinful heart. James chapter 4. Oh, all these little books stick together. James chapter 4. Verses 1 through 4. You know this passage. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasures that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers, and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, whoever wants to be a friend of the world, makes himself an enemy of God. War. See, if we are in Christ, sin never rests. 
the devil's minions never stop seeking to drag you and me aside and cause us to act as though we were under sin, not under grace. But that that realm is no longer where we live. Sin is not our master if we are in Christ. We can go back there and act like we're there. And that's what the devil wants. That's what our flesh wants. That's what the world seeks to do to us. Conflict and tension comes from sinful words and actions that we have given into. When you have a fight with your mate, examine yourself. What was your motive when you said that? Were you seeking your mate's best? Or did you have a point to make? Were you protecting yourself? Or were you seeking to honor your mate? When we try to handle tension through fleshly, worldly means, our trouble will increase. Within a family, within the assembly of saints, gathered by the Spirit of God into one local outpost of His kingdom, like we are here at Community Baptist, we must seek the Lord's way of peace. Selfishness is the human condition. And we're not immune when we are born from above and given life in Christ. Because these patterns of the flesh still plague us, and they will until He comes again. We cannot have unity within a local fellowship if our focus is on self. We must seek to honor each other more than self, reminding ourselves of the unity within the Godhead which serves as a model for us. If you recall the scene in Corinth, Paul wrote to them, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 of that letter, Paul was about to instruct these saints about the Lord's Supper. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you've come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. That's verses 17 through 18. You go jump down to 22, 21 and 22. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul doesn't disown the Corinthians. He calls them brothers all throughout his letters to them. But he rebukes them because they have this petty attitude towards one another. The Lord's Supper is a testimony of our mutual love for one another based on the, the love that God has poured out on our souls. Divisions and disputes destroy this unity, unity that is supposed to be a testimony to the world that we belong to Him. When Paul opened this letter, he did so with an exhortation to unity in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13 of 1 Corinthians. He said, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and there be no divisions among you, but you do be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or I am, Christ, I am of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This party spirit that Paul is bemoaning is common among people. It's an expression of selfishness. It's an expression of preferring your own opinion above others. Now, in the same letter, we are described as various parts of the human body with reminders that no part of the human body is there by chance, unneeded to be looked down upon. Each part has a place, each part rather was placed there by the Creator to work together. Science tells us that you don't need this part of that part of your body. God didn't put your appendix there just to have it there. We may not know what all work the appendix does for us, and we can live without the appendix, but it doesn't have no purpose. When you stub your toe or when you smash your finger with a hammer, your whole body hurts, does it not? When we strike out at a brother or sister, we are smashing a thumb with a hammer. Paul finishes up this this letter in chapter 12. He says, God composed the body, having given greater honor to that body, that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but the members should have all the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. For if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Diversity in gifting for unity and service. Diverse gifts given to each of us so that we may come together in unity and serve one another. See, this is our calling in Christ. See, the world, they want to have They want to have diversity and perversity for celebrating debauchery. See, when they talk about diversity, they don't talk about coming together and working for common cause. They talk about celebrating their diversity as an end to itself. And when you see the parades that they have, it's debauchery. That's the way the world celebrates diversity. Unity. In the body of Christ, not uniformity. A toe is not a hand. An eye is not an ear. They're not all the same, but they are all working together. Serving one another, not self. Being thankful to God for His many gifts to us. Keeping our focus on glorifying the Lord in all we do and say. Trusting and honor one another. Trusting and honoring one another is the only way we can claim to be walking as children of the light. Not blind acceptance, but trust. Jacob's family in chapter 43 of Genesis doesn't give us a model to follow. It's not a model for family unity. There's some good points in it. Judah's part in this chapter. Judah points us to the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's where the goodness comes from. But the jealousy and lack of respect and trust for each other stands as a warning to us. Jacob and his father before him provoked their children because they expressed favoritism to one over another. If your life is marked 
by sinfulness and strife, the world will only give you false answers and false remedies. If you have the Spirit of God within you, you and I have no excuse to ignore the instructions we've been given regarding our expression of love for one another. The answer, if you have strife and hatred in your life, is come to the risen Lord Jesus. Find peace for your soul. And with all of us who have come to Him for cleansing and life eternal, He is still the way and the only way to peace with God and to peace with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's an old hymn reminded me of the hymn that's printed in our bulletin this morning. When I read it, I was laughing at the similarities. The last two stanzas of the hymn, I think, are relevant to us in context of this chapter. No strength of our own or goodness we claim, yet since we have known the Savior's great name, in this our strong tower for safety we hide. The Lord is our power. The Lord will provide. When life sinks apace and death is in view, this word of His grace shall comfort us through. No fearing or doubting with Christ on our side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. See, brothers and sisters, that's our confidence right there. You may be going through good times. You need to be reminded the Lord has provided that for you. You may be struggling with some hard times that are really difficult for you to think anybody else really understands the trouble you're facing. We are given to one another to comfort each other during good times and bad times, whether you weep, whether you rejoice. The Lord will provide. He provides comfort to His people by His Spirit and also through His people. That's why I, I pray specifically as they journey back that Gary will be a comfort to Kyle. They have time together. They've known each other for a long time. They have a close relationship. And that brother is going through a tough patch. He needs to be encouraged to stand fast, to cling to Christ. We need to love him. We need to love each other, all, all one another's. May God have mercy on us.